Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 11, 2018. The share IDs for Friday, March 9th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11146, that's 11,146. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11147, that's 11,147. This morning, A Vision for You presents, there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening. If you're suffering from compulsive overeating, the big book provides clear directions as to how you can experience such an awakening. Those of us who have walked this path can assure you of its effectiveness. We have, an ex- we have experienced an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us into different people. We have a profound alteration in our whole attitude toward life, our fellows, and towards God's universe as a result of our new spiritual condition. The obsession of the mind has been driven out. We have been restored to sanity. The big book boldly states we have recovered. It also declares we are not cured. We have a daily reprieve from the original bondage of food as long as we have a daily practice of staying awake by practicing and living in steps 10, 11, and 12. These steps keep up keep us in fit spiritual condition and growing along spiritual lines. It is by continuing to take a daily inventory, continuing with daily prayer and meditation practice, and continuing to help other compulsive overeaters that we continue to grow along spiritual lines and keep ourselves fit to be of service to God and those about us. Joining us to speak on this topic of living in 10, 11, and 12 is Len P., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Len is a devoted member of Overeaters Anonymous and the 12-Step Way of Life, and he's here to share his experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. Welcome to the line, Len. Well, I feel so honored to be asked to lead Vision for You in Special Edition, and Thank you, Leah, so much for the incredible honor and the wonderful um, introduction. Uh, and I'm so grateful for this phone fellowship. Uh, my dear friend Harlan, and you'll, he's integral to my story, uh, would agree, and I agree with him, that this is the renaissance of OA, that uh, not only do we hear recovery, uh, that the big book outlines, that we don't just hear the problem, but we hear, the, more importantly, the solution. And um, why I titled this, uh, you know, why his eyes were inextricably different, you know, this was a passage out of um, Bill's story, and this is when Ebby comes to um, uh, to uh, Bill, and this is, you know, uh, Ebby was a fall down drunk, just like Bill, and uh, Bill thought he was going to have a, an amazing evening of drinking with his pal Ebby, and um, when he opened the door to see Ebby, said there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different what had happened. And he basically, uh, uh, there was a change, and Bill could see it. There was something about his friend that had changed. And, um, you know, that's 
uh, my story in recovery in a lot of ways. Um, today in recovery, there's something about my eyes. They're clear. They're full of hope. And um, it's not the antithesis of hope, which is, you know, those zombie eyes. Um, there's some, you know, the idea of going through life with those dull gray eyes uh, in the disease. You know, I was like the living dead, so to speak. And, and I was going through life morbidly obese. I was full of dread and I was full of the bedevilment. And I'll talk about that a little later. <clears throat> but before OA, and just to give you a little background, uh, before OA 19 years ago, I was well over 425 pounds. I stopped weighing the scale, but the scale, I, I had to actually go on a, an industrial scale at work. This was to measure bulk chemicals. Um, and I stopped weighing because it was just getting. Uh, so demoralizing, seeing the weight go up and up and up. And, you know, I was already a size 68-inch waist pants. And um, just to give you a little perspective, you know, I was, um, I'm six foot three, which is 75 inches, and I was almost as big around as I was tall. So I was a big boy. Uh, and and um, my eating was nonstop. You know, um, the first thing I thought about when I woke up was food. And uh, the only time I wasn't eating was when I was sleeping. And just for, uh, you know, just for um, uh, curiosity, I once did one of those online food calcula calculators uh, to actually see how much food I was eating in terms of calories. And I was eating over 13,000 calories a day, 13,000 calories a day. And that is some championship overeating, you know, and my belief about my addictive thinking was that if a little is good, a lot is better, and that's my thinking when I'm in any sort of addiction. So food was all I thought about, and, and um, you know, this um, was no mistake of, um, I would think, of my early programming, and uh, I will refer to this many times, but I think that, you know, as a young child, you know, uh, for my, for me, my higher power uh, was my parents, and if you think about it, you know, our, you know, they're you know five times as tall, they're you know five times as heavy, and you know they have all the power over my life. They could feed me, they you know clothe me, they house me, and um, you know one thing that I learned was that my, um, you know, my mom didn't believe in emotion really, and um, and. And um, so I, I just saw a text, I'm sorry. And so what was happening was, um, you know, when I would go um, and I was about three or four years old, and I, this is a very vivid memory for me, that, you know, when I, came, you know, I was running down the street and I remember falling down very hard on my knees and they were bloody knees, I was wearing shorts and I was crying and I come to my mom for support and what I got instead of a hug and, you know, I love you and I'll make it feel better, I got a, I'll, I will give you a reason to, you know, to cry and she slapped me across the face. So the feeling of, you know, support and the fact that emotion wasn't good was something that um, I had learned very early on uh, in life, this programming. And this is critical to why um, addiction started. The other thing that happened was that I noticed that mom was very, very quiet when um, she was eating. 
and it was typically foods with you know high sugar and high processed um, fat and that kind of thing. And I remember just as a aside, you know, when we would go shopping as a, uh, when I was a young child with my mom, we would go and get all the food of you know in the grocery store. And I remember we would run to the table and rip open those you know those paper bags trying to find the ice cream. And my dad never knew that we ever had ice cream because he was at work and there were three of us kids. So there was um, three of us kids and, and my mom. And basically we would take a sharpened knife and cut through those, you know, that ice cream block. It was this, uh, if you can imagine those uh, rectangular blocks of ice cream and they were frozen rock solid. And we would use uh, like a knife, a butcher's knife to try to cut through it like a saw blade because it was so hard and, you know, cut these even slices. And, and this was, you know, the early programming that I had. And um, so, you know, it was all about the food and, you know, fast forward, you know, before OA, you know, I, I had a 389 cholesterol. I had diabetes. I had a heart attack at age 39, uh, sleep apnea and plantar fasciitis and suicidal ideation. And I'll get back to when I almost did commit suicide, and that's later in my story. But the fact is, is that I wasn't actively planning my suicide at that moment, but I just didn't want to live another great day. And it's not hard to understand. You know, I had crushing, crushing depression. And in retrospect, it's, it was because I was chronically depressed. And you know, I was depressed because I felt that I was imprisoned in a body that I hated. You know, I looked at myself and I would always try to avoid any sight of my body. Um, I would only look at myself in the mirror, at my face. And if I ever caught a glimpse of my girth, you know, a side shot of myself, uh, I, it would disgust me. You know, again, I, my waist size was a size 68 and, you know, I was you know, I'm six foot three and here I am, you know, I hate myself. And, um, you know, my dad used to take candid shots. I hated that because he would take candid shots, uh, photographs of me without my knowledge. Because, you know, when I would take a picture and it was very rare that I did, I would always stand behind people and I typically wore black as if that would fool anyone and hide the fact that I was over 425 pounds. But I would always stand behind people because I didn't want anyone and I didn't want any record of the fact that I was so fat. But my dad would go and take pictures and he would take these side shots. And I remember just how crazy it would make me when I when he would hand me photographs. Think, And he didn't understand how much it just killed me to see these. And I would take these photographs and I would fold them up and put them in my pocket and throw them away outside my dad's uh, presence. But, you know, kids would laugh and point, you know, um, and I would break chairs. My um, brother had these wonderful teak chairs, uh, outdoor furniture, spent lots of money on. And I remember I broke two of them at one of his family events. Air airplane seats were impossible to sit in. And the flight attendants would, uh, you know, either I would get a really, really nice flight attendant who would surreptitiously hand me that seatbelt extender because of course I needed a seatbelt extender or I would get a flight attendant who wasn't so kind and would hold the seatbelt extender you know up in her arm so that the whole 
you know, plane could see that I needed one. And, you know, it was just one more, you know, salt in the wound kind of event, you know, one more shaming event. And uh, I remember one time, you know, a flight attendant actually spoke to the person who was in the center uh, seat and asked if they wanted to, you know, move and just treated me as if I was a non-existent blob, you know. I broke beds. I had to design my own bed frame. Uh, and I built it out of uh, four by sixes because I would break the uh, lower bed. Uh, I was too heavy and I broke beds and I couldn't fit in to movie theater seats. And, and uh, I broke my, um, I broke my uh, car seat and uh, eventually I would have to buy a very, very big car. I, and I'll talk about that a little later, but um, probably the most crushing story was uh, there's two. It has to do with my daughter and my daughter, um, there's a picture of her and it, she's sitting in my lap and she's about four or five years old at the time. And she's trying to make contact with me. And I could see it in the picture. She's looking into my eyes and my eyes are staring out into space. You know, I might've been there physically, um, but I was not there. I was a million miles away emotionally. And it's so clear in the picture, you know, she was trying to connect with dad. And the other incident with my with my daughter had to do with um, uh, an amusement park out here in California. And I remember, you know, we were standing in lines. Of course, that's what you do when you try to go in an amusement park. You have to stand in a lot of lines and go on a two-minute ride. But we'd stand in lines, you know, stand in this line for about an hour. And, um, and uh, we got up to the ride. And it was one of those things where you had a bar that comes over to hold and secure you into this into this seat. And I was so big and my daughter was so small and they couldn't close it. So I had to, you know, after waiting an hour, had to not go on the ride with my daughter. But what was worse was, and I don't know why it allowed this, but a grown man sat, some stranger who was behind us, sat with my daughter who was this young girl. And I could see my daughter, the horror that she had being in this ride because I was, I could see it, see the whole ride. And I kept an evil eye on her the entire time and on him, but I could see her just hating it, hating that, that dad wasn't with her and that the strange man was in this ride. And, you know, she was all the way to the end trying to get away from him. And it was just horrible. It was just horrible. And, um, you know, so this, th these were the things that just shamed me and, and crushed me. And so, you know, I tried a million diets. I tried all those diets that you, on the checkout line at the supermarket, none of them worked. And I, you know, tried popular diets, uh, other diets, uh, and tops, and Weight Watchers, and then finally a liquid protein medical diet. And um, you know, I got some some results, a uh, little bit of results of weight loss, so to speak. And um, but the thing, part of it was that you know you had to sit through this quasi counseling session. And basically what it was was this some this twenty something young lady who was about hundred and twenty pounds. Um, and she's she was telling this whole group, you know, what how wonderful it is to be um thin and how horrible it is to be overweight. And all I'm thinking is what does this girl know about walking in my shoes? You know, here I am over four hundred and twenty five pounds and she's this you know, and I'm, you know, in my late thirties and 
she's this young little 20 something girl who's just telling me, uh, you know, how wonderful it is to be thin and no kidding. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, is it odd or is it God? And this is something that Harlan would say, you know, um, I entered OA actually at, at the same facility that this liquid protein diet was being held at just so happened that there was an OA meeting uh, an hour after this medical diet um, meeting. And I said, what the, hey, you know, I'll go ahead and, and check it out. And so I entered OA 19 years ago, but I can't say that I got recovery 19 years ago. I certainly, that would be the furthest thing from the truth. I languished in OA. Um, I'm not one of those people who got recovery right away. You know, you might hear stories of people walking into program and boom, you know, they're immediately into recovery. It took three years. In fact, I was in the program for three years and did not lose one pound. You know, I heard things in meetings, and I hate to say it, that would kill me if, if I followed them all the way through. You know, I heard little snippets of recovery, but I also heard toxic notions. And unfortunately, I did not hear mentions of the big book. And, and in some of these meetings, I listened to motivational tapes. And uh, some of these meetings were actually held in restaurants where folks were eating you know, what I would consider today very non-abstinent food, but then a miracle happened. And I heard my grand sponsor speak, and then a month later I heard Harlan, the tape of Harlan. And let me tell you how that happened. Uh, my Eskimo in that meeting that I entered in at that medical hospital, um, she urged me to go to this meeting. It was a holiday marathon meeting, and it was November, so it was pre-Thanksgiving. And I didn't want to go because it was raining, and that car I told you about, that big car that I got, which was a 1974 Caddy convertible. And it was this monster car, got about six miles to the gallon. But the problem was is that the top was permanently down. There was a problem with the mechanism to get the top up. But there was something about you know this Eskimo who just urged me, and she just urged me so desperately to go to this meeting. So imagine, if you would, you know, a very heavy set man in a Cadillac driving in pouring rain um, that has no top on to go to a meeting. And, you know, I went. There was whatever it was, is it odd, is it God? But basically, that's where I heard the magic finally. My future grand sponsor was talking at that time, and I was looking at a man who looked like Keanu Reeves. And he had said that he was once almost 500 pounds at the height of his disease. And I'm looking at this guy and he looks great and he sounds great. And he was talking about the food in a way I hadn't heard in OA meetings before. He made analogies to alcohol and how, how certain foods altered his mind and how he ate to check out. And, um, you know, I was in OA for three years, never heard this kind of you know, passion. I never heard mention of the big book in this way at all. And I was intrigued. And uh, I remember I drummed up the nerve to call him, and he invited me to lunch, which, of course, was probably the scariest thing that I could do. You know, he wanted me to eat in front of him, and I was kind of afraid. But he talked about the addictive nature of some foods and, and uh, eating behaviors, and then he invited me to an OA meeting that he had started. And it was like a revival meeting. It was a big book only meeting, not unlike Vision for You in a lot of ways. It was a big book study. And um, after the meeting, a member who I did not recognize said, hey, Len, how you doing? And I looked at him, 
and I, I didn't recognize him. I, who is this guy? And he said, I met you three years ago at that medical meeting. Um, and when I couldn't believe it, I was stunned because at that meeting, he was over 450 pounds and he was miserable. And here he is in front of me, 170 pounds. And there was something about his eyes. So getting back to the theme of this story, something about his eyes, it was inexplicably different. He was on different footing and he had lost probably what, 300 pounds or a little less than 300 pounds. And then just to add, you know, one, two punch because God has to hit me over the head because I'm one of those guys. Um, I heard a tape of Harlan. He was the keynote speaker at that meeting. Had, I didn't go to that meeting. I didn't go to that uh, conference or the birthday party, but I heard the, um, I heard the tape and it was like a one, two punch, you know, as Harlan would say, is it God or is it God? So, you know, I tracked him down, you know, I tried to find his phone number and I called him and, and um, we were on the phone for eight months before I finally met him at a retreat, and uh, it was wonderful. But, you know, w what had happened is, you know, I had worked this program um, somewhat in this fellowship, but didn't work the steps in a true, meaningful way. You know, and I stopped calling my sponsor, and I stopped, you know, using some of the tools. But more importantly, I just didn't embrace the steps the way I do today. And what happened was my meetings started falling out and I kind of sort of did my food plan and I, and my program was dimming. It was becoming faint. And, but what happened was um, my, um, uh, my ego and my pride and my arrogance basically, um, uh, you know, failed, uh, failed me completely. In other words, these were things that kept me, from asking for help. And I'll tell you, there's no, no torture worse than knowing that there's a solution out there and not using it and uh, gaining back weight and having a head full of big book and a belly full of food. And, um, you know, I had gained back in a relapse 139 pounds of the over 200 that I had lost. And it was, I was just living, you know, um, in, a, in a deep misery. And, um, you know, what basically what it came down to is, um, you know, uh, I was married and uh, I was starting to fall back into the bedevilments, gaining weight back. And I remember my wife at the time, you know, she says, Len, I'm miserable. She says, Len, you're miserable. And together we're very, very miserable. And on the day after um, our anniversary, and which happened to be three days after my, or a day after my birthday, she uh, left me. She filed divorce. And um, this is when, you know, I seriously thought about suicide. This is when I knew, you know, I was gaining weight back and, you know, I was miserable and my wife had left. And uh, I have the means to immediately end my life. And, um, and I had a gun in my mouth. And I remember calling Harlan, and, and he said, you know, you have a chance to work this program and to work it in a deep, meaningful meaning, uh, way, and I did. And for a year straight, I went to at least a meeting a day, sometimes two, sometimes three. And, I mean, I was just, you know, every meeting I could go to, and I was just trying to just studying the big book 
inside out and working with the sponsor and, you know, understanding that, that I had to do this work in a deeper and more meaningful way. You know, I had to do this, uh, this work. And, um, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, I have to understand things about this disease. You know, you know, first is that I know that food, certain foods alter my perception of reality and, Food became my power. Food, I abandoned God and spirituality, and food became my higher power. And, you know, basically, you know, you know, God had given this program, and this was the solution to my disease, and I had turned my back on it. My ego and my pride had turned my back. And so, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, the power greater than myself, you know, basically, you know, when overeaters come together, that's not enough. Uh, to uh, lick this thing. You know, it's basically if we come together for the purpose of recovery, um, that's when a power greater than myself comes into this mix and we could start beating this disease using, you know, the wonderful, wonderful steps. You know, not, not just sitting in meetings, not just dieting with group support, but doing this, the steps the way they're outlined in the big book, you know, um, you know, but, you know, basically, you know, you know, my um, living in the bedevilments was um, what was happening to me. You know, I was, you know, in this horrible place right before my divorce and things started clearing up. You know, when I started working this program uh, in a meaningful, deep way and, um, you know, basically what I had to do was really look at what I was doing. You know, was I just dieting with group support? Well, you know, unfortunately, in that one meeting, I was. I lost a lot of weight, and I kind of sort of did the, the work, but I didn't do it in a meaningful way. You know, I had to dig deeper, and I think this is what has to happen, you know, um, because I'm one of those guys who looks for the loophole. I'm one of those guys who, you know, who uh, tries to find an easier, softer way, and there really isn't, you know. Um, you know, I have an allergy. I have an allergy of the body. This is one thing I know, you know, uh, this is what differentiates me from someone else, a normie, you know, and um, the fact is, is that I cannot stop eating certain substances once it's in my body, you know, and I choose those addictive foods at 2 a.m. when I'm going crazy and when the demons, you know, are loud and awake and screaming in my ear, I want to numb out. You know, and so, you know, I know that I have an allergy of the body, but it's that strange mental twist of the mind that gets me back to um, uh, wanting to eat that first bite. You know, why would I do that? Why would I go ahead and risk, you know, sleep apnea and suicidal ideation and diabetes and heart attacks and, and all the things that were related? And yet that this disease is so powerful, it makes me do what I don't want to do. It is so powerful, it could take away all the logic and just gut it and replace it with that emotional need to eat. And so bottom line is, you know, what I learned is that in recovery, I have a choice. I have a choice. I have a way out. I could go ahead and I could, uh, you know, and choose the food and it will work. It will work for 22 seconds. You know, I'm a heavy-duty, low-bottom eater. I could eat, and I have eaten, you know, four Big Macs in, in three minutes. I mean, this is how fast I eat. 
because I want to get that, you know, that, that I want to check out. I want to check out for my feelings. And, you know, because I have this profound inability to calm and soothe myself when I'm stressed, this is what I was programmed with, with mom, you know, getting back to, you know, how this programming absolutely ruined me. And so bottom line, um, you know, I have to understand, you know, I have to realize that I have to go deeper. I have to, you know, understand that, that um, you know, that food is not the answer to these, uh, to soothing my feelings. And what was interesting was, you know, when I would go ahead and I would calm this addiction with food, let's say I, I take out all the food out of my life, I noticed that other addictions started popping up because I wasn't going to the root cause of, um, of why um, I wanted to check out. In other words, if I handled the food, all of a sudden I wanted to gamble or I wanted to go on the internet or I wanted to, you know, watch, binge watch TV or, you know, any of the other addictions. And so basically, um, you know, I was switching addictions and not really addressing the real issue. Right. So the real issue of why not to take that first bite or not to engage in any other addiction is to actually work the steps and develop a spiritual and emotional um, uh, way of life. And so basically I had to change my perception. I had to change my thought, my feeling and my attitude and behavior. And this was all addressed, you know, through the steps, you know, one through three. Steps one through three, you know, address the power, my relationship with power. Steps four through seven, deal with myself and cleaning up house. You know, eight and nine, how I dealt with others. You know, and then 10 through 12, our way of life. And this is where I live today in 10 through 12. You know, so I know that, you know, just as a refresher, you know, that, you know, that, you know, Dr. Silkworth, he talked about the allergy obsession and and he quickly, um, you know, said that alcohol was, you know, an allergy of the body, and he described abstinence, you know, the mind, um, you know, uh, Reverend Frank Buckman, you know, he talked about how our mind is insane, and that, you know, we could be transformed, and then our will, you know, our unmanageable will, which is our spiritual malady that uh, Carl Jung talked about, and these are the things that I have to address. I have to address my addiction issue on a multi-pronged way. I have to attack it, not just with dieting with group support or not with psychoanalysis or anything else, but I have to go ahead and uh, attack it on all these three levels and, you know, and get out of the bedevilments, right? Get out of these bedevilments because the bedevilments are, in in essence, the anti-promises. They're the antithesis of the promises of living 10, 11, and 12. You know, I was in a self-imposed jail cell, and certainly biology has uh, something to do with it, with my addiction, my family culture, how I deal with emotions and psychology and education and spirituality. I understand that these are all part of why I would go ahead and become an addict, but the thing is to do is to put some light on what the root cause of all this is, and the root cause that I've learned in recovery is my self-centeredness, the root cause of just being selfish and being full of resentments and fears and dishonesty and secrets, guilts and shame, you know, and the idea is to get into action 
and to reveal these obstacles that are in my way um, to my higher power. Because essentially what the steps do is they clear a path to my higher power's um, message for me. <clears throat> I basically, when I'm full of self and I'm full of self-will, essentially, you know, I think I could handle everything. I was taught early on that emotion was bad and that perfectionism was the way to go. You know, I, you know, I have multiple degrees. I have lots of money in the bank. This is all due to early programming, you know, uh, and I didn't handle emotions well. I had to use addiction. I was maladapted to uh, emotions, but, you know, I was, this was early programming for me. And so what happens in this wonderful process of step work is it actually shines a light on those character defects. And what I can do is just pray for them to be removed in step seven. Just like my addiction it was removed from me uh, by my higher power, um, I could pray for all these character defects to be removed. And when I do that, I open up a clear channel to God and my higher power's uh, will for me. You know, when I align myself with my higher power, I don't have to do the work. You know, the root of the serenity prayer is basically, you know, understanding that I'm not responsible for results. In other words, I have to be okay with what is in life and not pound my head against the wall, uh, hoping to try to change that. Now, I was brought up being taught that I could accomplish anything, that, you know, that, you know, that I could uh, handle anything, you know, uh, and these were the things that actually worked against me because I would hit a brick wall and, you know, that brick wall would not move. And as hard as I tried to move that wall, it would not move. And, you know, what I learned today is my higher power is responsible for the results in my life. And what a relief. What a way to just let all of that, you know, tension of having to accomplish and be responsible for those results. You know, I'm not saying that I give up and I sit in a chair and wait for everything to fall in my lap. Of course not. My higher power gave me a brain to use, and I use it. But the fact is, is that when things don't go my way, that's okay. That's all right. Because, you know, my God is, you know, he uh, has a GPS, or he is the GPS. He knows where my life is going to go. He, has, he knows what the direction is for my life. And sometimes what I think is best for me at a certain time really isn't the best thing for me at a certain time. And, and he knows that. And so I have to have the faith to know that he has my back. And boy, does he have my back. You know, I, you know the wonderful thing about this program is I get to choose a God of my understanding that works for me. And, you know, I was brought up in a religion that, um, well, me and maybe five other people in where I live in Southern California in this community might be Jewish, you know. Uh, and I, you know, didn't really identify with that when I was young. I mean, I, it scared me. You know, the religion was in a different language and there were different rituals and, you know, we couldn't celebrate Christmas and I had to go to Hebrew school when my friends were playing baseball and, you know, I, it was one of these things where I felt different. And so today I get to choose a higher power that works for me. This program tells me I could do that. And what works for me is, you know, um, you know that, you know, God is good orderly direction or, you know, G another G-O-D is 
you know, good old dude. You know, he's a good old dude. He's really cool, and he has a wicked sense of humor. And a quick story on my higher power, you know, uh, of all places, um, I remember um, my first communication with God. You know, I had been ducking God all my life and not really engaging with God at all. And I remember sitting, of all places, at a roulette table in Las Vegas. And I'm sitting down, and I had a lot of money on number 20 for some reason. I don't know why. And I remember just in a real way thanking God for another chance of life, thanking God that I'm still around for my daughter. I remember this. It was so moving. You know, and uh, I felt this warmth. I felt this warmth that kind of came through me and felt very serene and very happy during that, this prayer, so to speak. And it was really my first real prayer to God, a thank you. And I remember the number 20 hit. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I just left the money there. And um, the wheel spun again. I still felt this warm feeling. And the number 20 hit again. So it hit twice in a row. And I remember collecting my winnings and going upstairs and calling my grand sponsor and saying, oh, my God, you know, I just won this. And I think God had talked to me. And he said, calm down, Len, you know, this is great, but, you know, just calm down. And But, you know, getting back to why my higher power has a wicked sense of humor. So I went back down to that roulette table about an hour and a half later. And I remember saying, hey, God, you know, I'm so thankful for what a wonderful recovery that I have. And this is really great. And of course, the number 20 never came up. And I started laughing. I I think I lost like $100 trying to pull one over on God. And it's like, wow, you know, I had to laugh. I got up and I laughed. and I said, wow, you know, I'm trying to pull over on God. This is funny. But you know, the fact is my, my higher power has a sense of humor. My higher power loves me no matter what I do. You know, he has my back. And the fact is he, I have the faith that he knows what is best for me, right? So the idea is, you know, that I have to live in 10, 11, and 12 today, and I do. And this is what keeps me, uh, you know, on the right path. You know, I enter the world of the spirit, so to speak, right? And everything gets recovered. You know, my body and mind become recovered, right? My physical sobriety. You know, our way of life really is, you know, clearing that channel to God and doing my inventory in step 10 and 11, prayer and meditation, right? Filling that channel with prayer and meditation. And then that empty channel is doing service. In other words, going ahead and and constantly passing the spiritual coin that was so, you know, um, uh, painlessly... uh, transferred to me you know basically I was given something and I have to give it away in order to keep it you know bottom line is you know the problem was is that I was asleep to certain things about my life and I had a distorted way of looking at the world and my emotions were disturbed when I was in um, the uh, food and when I was in my addiction and I was living in the bedevilments I was having trouble with my personal relationships I couldn't control my emotional nature. I was a prey to misery and depression. And I had this feeling of uselessness and I was full of fear and I was unhappy. And I really couldn't seem to be of help to real people. Uh, and um, and so, you know, this is what I do today is I, I live in the, the um, 
promises. I stay awake. I do an inventory, making sure that, you know, did I harm someone? Did I immediately make amends? I do um, meditation and accountability. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, during the day, you know, I look for you know, resentment, fear, and dishonesty and selfishness, right? I take action. You know, I pray and, and I discuss it with um, someone trusted in program. And I make amends if I have to and do service, right? And then, um, you know, I go ahead and the results are, you know, forgiveness, trust, honesty, and love. You know, and this is where uh, I live today in step 10. You know, the wonderful thing about doing step 10, and I do, you know, 20 to 30 step 10s a day because living a life, you know, there are things that come up in life. And so why does a step 10 work for me? Well, I'll tell you. The book, the answers are so clear, and they're in this beautiful big book. You know, what does the, the book say? The book says, pause when agitated. That God, And that we've heard programs saying, you know, God is in the pause. God is in the pause. Now, why is that important? Well, because my old default would be emotional disturbance, eat. Emotional disturbance, eat. Emotional disturbance, eat. So what is, why is God in the pause? Because it's emotional disturbance, pause when agitated. And the book is real clear. It says, you know, ask, why am I agitated? And I, I do. Why am I agitated? And I do the four columns, right? What is it? Who did it to me? What part of self and what part did I have to do in it? And so I analyze that. I pray over it. I talk about it with my sponsor or someone trusted in program. And then I go ahead and I do service. And I don't mention this problem at all. And what I've just done is I think the essence of what this program wants to do, which is to get out of self and turn something bad into something good. This is this transformation that happens with this emotion. You know, I go from feeling this horrible feeling, you know, and I'm agitated and my old default was to eat. But now what I do is I do this process and I ask someone else how their day is going. And during that 10 minutes of all these things that I discussed, you know, my problem, I'm not focused on self anymore, and I'm thinking about someone else. I've just done a hat trick with this issue, you see. And when I do that, and when I do that um, selflessly, what happens is I feel good about it. I feel good that I could help someone else. And that feeling is so much better than, you know, eating, you know, a cheeseburger or, or pizza or whatever it might be. You know, it's, it, it's this wonderful feeling of being useful, you know. And, and this is what I've learned, you know, that the root of this disease is selfishness. And if I could get out of self and help others and become other-centered, right, and, and enlarge my spiritual life, I pass that spiritual coin, you know. And uh, I'll tell you, it, it's this wonderful process. It's this wonderful habit. You know, I, as an addict, love habits. I love routines. And if I could change the old routine, which is eating to soothe the emotions, and change, and change that routine into something that's wonderful and program-based, what happens is that pathway in my mind, in my brain, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. If I practice, you know, doing programs instead of practicing my addiction, right, then um, I'm, I'm all the better. I have more insurance of not slipping back into the disease. You know, and I do an evening uh, inventory on step 11, and I do a morning, you know, prayer meditation. I think, 
and consider and listen, listen to my higher power. And then I'm awake all day. I'm awake all day to anything that might agitate me. And I pause instead of running to my food, right? Running to addiction. And this is what's so wonderful. You know, this change is happening not by us, but to us, right? And um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful that this is my way of life today. And I have to carry this message. I have to give it away in order to keep it. I can't hoard that spiritual currency. I can't just keep it all to myself. So I have to work with other folks. And this is what keeps me uh, abstinent. You know, what did, what did the book say? The book says that, you know, work with another alcoholic saves the day all the time. Work with another person in program, you know, it, it works all the time. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling, you know. You know, basically what happens today is, you know, you know my, I'm going into, you know, my life is now, you know, about honesty and faith and hope and trust and courage and integrity and willingness, humility, compassion and justice, you know, discipline, awareness and service. You know, this is what the principles of the steps are. And basically the meetings, what they do is they identify the problem. The big book is the instructional manual of this problem. The steps are the precise process that I use to handle this problem. And the prayer goes to my powerlessness and the service is contrary action because being, you know, uh, selfish was my old way and now I'm doing service and being a sponsor, you know, giving this away, giving it away. You know, I, I sponsor people and I get more out of it. You know, people don't understand, my sponsors don't understand it. But I always tell them that I get more out of it than they get out of it from me, you know, and they don't believe me. But what it does is it keeps me getting out of selfish thinking and I get to help others and it makes me feel wonderful, you know. Today, you know, my I have physical sobriety and my mind is calmer today and I'm closer to God than I've ever been before. And basically, I want to keep that. And how do I do that? I have to work this program every day. You know, I have to get out of this self-centered thinking and get into other-centered uh, thinking. And this is what happens in program. You know, this is what happens. And basically, I'm turning my disease into harmony, my addiction into abstinence, my anger and resentments into love and forgiveness, my fear and anxiety into trust and tranquility, my inappropriate sex behavior into guided principles, my dishonesty, dishonesty with self and others into rigorous honesty. Secrets go from being secretive to transparent. Guilt and shame goes into freedom. Unhealthy self-esteem becomes healthy self-worth, and my will uh, gets aligned with God's will. And that's the 12 you know, um, steps that I live. And I want to close with a couple of things. One is there's this wonderful, uh, if you go on Google, you could take a look at what Dr. Bob wrote. He wrote it in February 1937. It was on his um, prescription pad. And he says, two alcoholics, always remember it. And it's just six words. It's one, trust God, two, clean house, and three, help others. In those six words, he's encapsulated and distilled this program. And, you know, I want to talk about how this disease is always with me, but it's in, it's, it's a whisper today. It's not screaming in my ear. You know, I liken it to a great white shark. 
if I'm not, if I'm kind of wonky in my recovery, I'm on a raft that's right on water's level, and it's one of those skimpy little plastic rafts that you, like a toy, and there's this great white shark monster, and it's right at my level. I'm right on the raft. I'm right at the level, and that's me not working program. That's me trying to fend off this disease, which is the great white shark. When I'm working program, that shark is still there, but I'm on an ocean liner, and I'm on the top floor of that ocean liner, and the perspective of that shark now looks like a little guppy. It's a little guppy now, not this big monster, because I'm not right in it. And it's still there. That shark is still there, but the perspective of that shark is different. In other words, that the the um, the strength and intensity of that disease is now a whisper in my mind. It's still there. I'll never be cured, but I'm recovered. And, um, you know, I want to end with a story that, that always brightens my day. And it's a, a recovery story that I got to be witness to. And it, it was, you know, I remember being asked to lead a meeting, and it was in Brentwood. And if anyone lives in California, I live in Yorba Linda, which is in Orange County. And the meeting actually was to be scheduled at 5 p.m. on a Friday in Brentwood. So Brentwood's about 75 miles away, and I live in Orange County at 5 p.m. So I said, okay, if it's Friday, I'll leave Thursday. And that's a joke, of course, but the traffic out here is ridiculous. To go anywhere, especially on a Friday at 5 p.m., you really have to leave early. So I left very, very early, and I remember getting there early because I hate to be late. And I did the meeting, and it was a wonderful meeting, and I led the meeting, and, you know, all the magic occurs in the parking lots. This is where the magic occurs, where the rubber meets the road. And there was a, a gentleman there, and he was 500 pounds if he was a day, and he was about five foot six. and he said, Len, would you be my sponsor? And I got to, I had the honor to sponsor him. And uh, over the course of two and a half years, he went from 500 pounds to 180 pounds, and he was his life had transformed. You know, you know, and I remember beating him all the time, and there was something about his eyes that changed. And I remember, you know, looking at him and uh, just full of amazement, you know, that he was working this program in such a rigorous way and doing the deal, as we say. And I remember getting a call from him. And I was mortified because he was crying. He was crying on the phone, and I couldn't believe it. And I said, what's the matter? And he says, I just got my lab results back. Now, you know, he works in Hollywood, and, and um, I never question, you know, my sponsees about anything about their sexuality or anything. But I had thought the worst in terms of diseases because he was crying. And he says, Len, I got my lab results back. And I said, well, well what is it? And he says, well, all the tests came back low normal, low normal. In other words, he was a diabetic and he was shooting insulin and had high sugars and high triglycerides before program. And he now, for the first time in his life, had low normal. You know, these are the miracles that we see in program. These are, this is the goody of program. You know, every time I tell that story, I get goosebumps and I have them now because, you know, we give life back to people. We change those eyes. There's something about their eyes, you know, when they come in. And they come in, they come in full of fear, and they come in with dead eyes, and they come in 
beaten down by this horrible, horrible disease. And I know what it's like to be beaten down by this disease. I have something special to offer. You know, there's a saying, you know, that the crap I've gone through can fertilize recoveries and others. And, you know, we, we pass wisdom the old school way. You know, it's not this instant internet, you know, fast food kind of way and the instant gratification, but the old school way where one person passes it along to another. And we get to see people transform. We get to see that transformation in their eyes. We get to see them come to life again. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Bill and, and uh, Ebby at that, that famous table, which, by the way, I got to sit at. I went out to Vision for You uh, that, uh, the uh, wonderful weekend, and uh, I went with Harlan, and I got to sit at the table that Ebby and Bill sat at when Ebby refused that drink and when there was something about his eyes that he was inexplicably different and, uh, you know, that he had found God. And that's essentially what I've done. I found God in this program that, that is a God of my understanding, you know, and I will take something from the Talmud, which is one of the sacred books in Judaism, and it says, if you save one life, you save the world entire. And that's what we do in OA. We save the world one person at a time. And it's an amazing feeling. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Len, for this beautiful and inspiring message of recovery today. Thank you for sharing your experience with all of us and your personal insights. Another miraculous story of transformation. Thank you very much. Len's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. The share ID, the reference number for this recording is 11150, that's 11,150. We will now transition to question and answer segment. If you have a question for Len, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute. Please announce yourself, including the first letter of your last name. Who Carolyn has S.H. Carolyn. Roz R., Florida. Roz R. Lori T. Lori T. Linda D. Linda D. Marcy R. Marcy R. Gen Z. Gen Z. Z. I didn't catch after Gen Z. Mora Z. Mora Z, gotcha. Okay, that's a good grouping. Carolyn S.H., everybody else mute, please. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Thank you for your service, Len. Thank you so much, Len. That was really fabulous. Um, and my question is, I love hearing about the 20 to 30 step tens a day, and I would love to understand how that works schedule-wise. Oh, Carolyn, what a wonderful question. You know, the, the thing is, and in terms of scheduling it, um, you know, you pause when agitated and do the work immediately. And I know that it's challenging, of course, during the day, and I work, and I, as I assume you may work, and, and, and you may have you know, other commitments and children and kids and what, whatever it might be, 
And um, the fact is, is that I, I realize when I do these step 10 and I handle it immediately, and th this is the key, not to let it fester. Now, I understand that there are very important things that happen in life. Is it possible to even take a bathroom break? You know, uh, sometimes we feel rushed and that we can't even do that. But, you know, if you have to take a, a step away from whatever you're doing, like I do, uh, I could go to the bathroom. That's one place that I know that I could have some privacy. And it's, you know, politically correct, <laughs> I guess, to go to the bathroom, right? We, we won't get dinged even at work for going to the bathroom. And I could do my work there. I could, you know, go and take a break from whatever is ailing me and actually go through this process. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, it, it, if I address the issue when the agitation comes up, uh, I live a better and more serene life. If I let it fester, it will probably infect the rest of my day, and it will infect those around me. So if I'm in a business meeting that something's going crazy, uh, I could take a break from it. But if I continue to stay in that craziness, I may do something that's irreparable. I may damage my reputation or I may make a faulty decision. And so, you know, taking that little break um, I think is imperative, you know, when, when you're under those kinds of agitations. Um, because remember, you know, we, we can do things and, and you know, where we might have to make amends. And um, I would much rather take that little bathroom break to analyze, you know, uh, you know what had, had just happened and what part of self and, you know, what part did I have in it. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, make a call to my sponsor or to a trusted friend and to get outside of myself, you know, to make a call to someone else and to get out of that feeling, you know, to do that little hat trick with that, with that, with that angst, you know. So I hope that helped. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Carolyn. Roz R. Hi, can I be heard? You can. Are you on speaker? Yes, I'll take it off. Here. Thank you. Better? Much. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks, Leah, and thank you, Len, for your share um, today. Uh, I'm Roz R. from Florida, and that was really powerful. Oh, okay. Um, I can't believe I may have missed meeting you at the convention in New Jersey. It sounds like you were there, but uh, and I guess I did. Um, I just wanted to, I have a, a similar question. The step 10 really stood out in my mind, but I wanted to just relate when, when I first started going to meetings 36 years ago, being Jewish, I thought it was a sin to go in a church basement. So I, um, I could relate to that, but so much of your talk was so powerful, but where I'm at today is those, is those. Do you hear that noise or am I just I hearing do. it? No, I'm not. Oh, too. okay. I'm trying to take care um, of that. Continue. Thank you. Okay. Anyway, on those step tens, that was my downfall. It's always has been, and now I do do them, but I wanted to ask you, because my sponsor um, does everything right out of the big book, and I wanted to ask, when you have like so many in a day, uh, you know, do you always personally try and reach someone, or do you do them in your head, you know, to, you know, pray, you know, ask for the uh, the the defect or the character, you know, defect to be removed, and then um, 
if you don't, if you haven't got the opportunity to talk to someone, you know, what do you do at that point? Cause like, I try, I, I try and talk to someone, but many times I can't. And I just wondered what process do you use when there's that many? Cause I find sometimes they do pile up. Um, and then, you know, I'll have three or four to do at one time to talk to someone. So I'd like to know your process again, you know, a little bit deeper on that 10th step. Um, and that's what my question is. And thanks, Len. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, Roz, you know, you hit a good point, you know, letting them build up and what, what it can do, um, uh, to, you know, your recovery. And, you know, again, you know, this agitation, you know, this is the emotional engine that drives our illness. You know, understand that. Wow. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, What's going on on the line here? Um, uh, When we have this kind of um, emotional attack, so to speak, and when we have these kinds of things that come up, uh, these these um, you know that's the engine that fuels this disease in a lot of ways, the emotional component of uh, the disease. And so the idea is, you know, to address that emotional disease. And, you know, the old way that I handled emotion was not to handle it. And, right. you know, as Harlan would say, you know, they have a word for people who discover, who actually experience feelings, and that, and that is human being. It's okay to have emotions. And number one is to allow yourself to actually say it's okay to have emotions. But two you know, and not to run to addiction because that was my old default. In other words, you know, have an emotion and, you know, I learned early on emotion was bad. You know, don't deal with emotion. Pull yourself up by your old, you know, by your bootstraps. Be tough, be strong. You know, and that was my mom. My mom was, uh, you know, came from, uh, you know, a tenement in New York and, and uh, you know, was beaten severely by her mom and you know, married to get out and she made herself a multi-gazillionaire out here in california and she's one of these you know you know tough-minded strong-willed women who you know made a fortune and basically thought that emotion was weakness she equated all emotion with weakness and uh you know she told me by the way you know she says you know len you have one day to mourn the loss of your wife one day that's all you're allowed mm-hmm. one day and you have to move on you know, and so that that's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous to think that that one could uh, to do that. So how do I handle it? How do I schedule it? It's important to understand that these are the things that drive our addiction. So we have to reconcile them somehow. And if you can't, you know, break away, you know, you, you, you try like like hellfire. I mean, you know, everyone's allowed to go to the bathroom at work, you know, um, I mean, that's, you know, this is something that is uh, allowed. If, you know, can you go for a walk? I mean, you know, Bill used to take walks and I walked actually at um, Stepping Stones in the same, you know, little forest area that uh, his house was located. And, uh, you know, that idea of doing meditative walks and to get away from it and then actually think about those things and call and discuss because it's important to have a third party perspective. You know, when we're, when I'm in my head, sometimes I'm my, my, my own worst enemy. You know, sometimes I get into a spiral of, of all these horrible things. And so when I bounce the idea off someone else, you know, I could, I could kind of reel in that, um, that craziness in my mind. Right. 
And mm-hmm. and it's important to hear that perspective. You know, remember, you know, when two or more are gathered for the purpose of recovery, a power greater than ourselves comes into the mix. When I talk to another person and bounce ideas off that person, a power greater than ourselves comes into this mix. And sometimes, and most of the time, the right answer comes, you know. And so I think it's critically important to, you know, step away when these big things build up, these emotional um, components of that emotional engine that drives the disease comes up and flares up, you know, to address it, to address it as soon as you can. And, you know, going to the bathroom, listen, everyone's allowed to go to the bathroom. So, you know, definitely, you know, use that. So I hope that was helpful. Thank you, Razar. Lori T. Star one to unmute. Good morning. Thank you. And um, what a great, encouraging, and exciting share for me. Um, you filled in a, a you said a couple of things that really helped encourage me, particularly about the feeling of helping others, replacing those other feelings. I think that's um, an equation I didn't have, but. I have a more general question, and this is because I attend not just Vision, but some other meetings also. And I wanted to ask you your honest opinion about why do you think there is such a, a low success rate and really even a low participation rate? Sometimes I'll call on other meetings and it's like there are 13 attendees. And you think there'd be thousands as long as OA has been around and as good as it is. So I was just wondering what's your take on the downside of why this doesn't work for so many of our suffering fellows. Lori, you've you touched on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and I have to be careful. I've, I've, I've been warned by <laughs> so many folks because I've actually been banned on certain um, recording sites because I, I, yeah, I, get, I delve into outside issues, but I think I could navigate in a way that won't get me into trouble and get me banned. I hope I hope I won't get banned, uh, Leah. So anyways, bottom line, here we go. So, Lori, I absolutely agree with you. A lot of a lot of what is said in OA general, so to speak, you know, the OA meetings, the face-to-face meetings that are out there that are not necessarily big book based or shall I say use other methods. You know, I was in meetings that you know, use tape recordings, for God's sakes. And, and it was like motivational tapes, and they were calling this OA meetings. This was my experience. You know, this was my experience 20 years ago. And even up to a couple years ago, I was in meetings that were not, uh, shall we say, did not have a phenomenal success rate. And you have to understand, and I'm, I'm a multiple addict, so putting the food down is, is an amazingly difficult thing to do. You know, because we, of course, we have to take the tiger out of the cage three times a day at least, right? For most of us, most of us eat three times a day. So me playing with my food in any way uh, is dangerous in some ways, right, in some respects. And I think because there's so many different definitions of abstinence and because there's so many different definitions of, of what is doing the deal, Unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways, the big book, the message in the big book, which I equate to the mothership of recovery, the big book in my mind is absolutely the method for recovery. And 
I believe that Bill and Bob were taking dictation from God to get you know, his children out of this horrible morass of addiction. And I believe that Bill and Bob were taking dictation is what I think, because it was the, what I think a pure message. Unfortunately, in some meetings, um, they've been degenerated into quasi-group therapy sessions, or I hate to use the word, but like, uh, you know, kvetch uh, uh, sessions. And those of, those of my Jewish brothers understand kvetching, which is kind of, you know, complaining, right? Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, if, you know, it's really easy to complain about how horrible it is to be overweight. And it's, compl- it's easy to complain about your dying dog and your sick you know, child and all these other things. Um, but that's not what really the recovery is about. The recovery is about talking about how overeating has ruined our life and that, and more importantly, to talk about the solution, you know, talk about the steps that are necessary to get out of the problem. We all can identify with how horrible it is to be in the food. That's easy. We all can do that. We're all experts at that. However, talking about the solution and in a meaningful way, and talking about really what this whole thing's about, you know, it's not just the, you know, allergy of the body, but it's that strange mental twist of the mind and working these steps. And unfortunately, there are some meetings that just don't talk about that, and we don't get this, that success rate. You know, my understanding is, you know, at the height of OA, we were over 120,000 strong. My understanding today is we're less than half that. We're about 60,000 strong. And of that number, such a few in, uh, are actually recovered. I, I, like I said at the beginning, I think Vision for You, like Harlan believes, will be the renaissance of OA. It will turn this OA around because if we do it the way the book tells us to do it and that we study it the way we do in this meeting, this fellowship, uh, we get results. And today I go to meetings that are peppered with folks with, that are in Vision for You. I like hearing the the solution to the problem, not just the problem. And I think that's, you know, um, you know, my experience. You know, I, like I said, I languished in OA for three years, did not lose one pound. I was miserable. And I, had, I heard a lot of weird things, weird ideas about recovery that had nothing to do with the big book in OA meetings. So I'm, I hope that answers your question. I know it's a little bit of a downer, but I, I think that we have something amazing in vision for you. And I think Vision for You will turn OA around in a lot of ways. It's turned my life around in so many ways. So, with, so thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Hmm. Thanks, Lori T., for the question. Linda D., star one to unmute. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, Lynn, for the um, excellent talk. I have a question that comes from my memory two years ago, starting out in program. And um, it still boggles me a little bit today. Before I recovered, I didn't know how to call people. I didn't know what to say when I called people. I would be hungry, and I wanted to call someone, but I'd say to myself, how can I call someone? I just All I want to say is I'm hungry. And I didn't know what they'd say, I, uh, but I was scared to. And now, on the other end of it, I sometimes wonder, when, we, when people call us, or when we call people who are new in program and they say, I just don't know what to do, I'm hungry. Are there ways that you have used to 
help people in that moment, you know, before they've had the spiritual awakening. You know, uh, just simple things, practical ideas. Would love to hear some if you have any. You know, that's a wonderful question, Linda. I, you know, early in recovery, I remember um, I was told to call three people a day. And I didn't understand why. And my sponsor at the time didn't really give me a reason. You know, he just said, well, you have to call three people a day. In retrospect and looking at it from the perspective of being recovered today, you know, understand that our disease operates in isolation. Isol- you know, our disease loves isolation. It loves for us to be alone. It loves to separate us from humanity. And I mean, that's what I would do, you know, when I was deep in my disease, you know, I would go to work, put on a phony smile and, um, you know, pretend uh, that, you know, people uh, who were making fun of me, that that was funny, you know, and I engaged in self-deprecating humor because of my weight, because, you know, I figured that's the only thing I could do, you know, people pleasing and all these things. But I would come home after a day like that and lock myself in my study and, you know, sit down and lay down with, you know, three pizza boxes on my chest and turn on the TV set. And that was my life. You know, I loved the idea of isolation. My disease wanted me to isolate. So the idea of calling people to get in the habit of calling people is so integral because understand that, you know, when we call people, we now engage in humanity. We, we start to ask about their lives. And so a recommendation, you know, I, I hear what you said when you first started, you know, you were scared to call and that you were hungry. And you probably were hungry. You know, if you were uh, not working the steps immediately, if you weren't getting in your fourth step inventory and addressing uh, the emotional and spiritual disconnect and cleaning house, um, you, you were probably starting to feel feelings. And how did you deal with those feelings? You wanted to eat. Your old default was emotion, eat, emotion, eat. So you probably did want to eat because all of a sudden you weren't medicating and all of a sudden you're feeling hunger. And the hunger was an emotional hunger. So the idea of actually connecting with people and being uh, engaged in their lives yeah, is important. So what do I do when I get an outreach call from a newcomer? I ask them how their day is going. I start talking to them on a more personal way, you know, trying to kind of eke out something, something to talk to them about, you know, because they're so mangled and so um, beaten up and so, you know, pounded into the ground with this horrible disease that if they're making an outreach call, it's like, think about it like this. Think about that they're in the ocean and in the sea of, of addiction and the sea waves are 16 feet tall, and you are, you are their life raft. You are their, their, their lifeline, you know, and, you're, and what that call represents is them raising their hand up, hoping to get out of this horrible sea of addiction. So, you know, you have a chance to turn them around. You know, you have a chance to connect with them and just be human with them and ask them how their day is going and empathize with them. I mean, these are the things that we're hungry for, you know, when we're in our disease. When we're, when we're beaten up and we're, we're out of ideas and we call someone, what it is is it's this cry for help in a way sometimes. And, uh, you know, the idea is to not shut the door on that or give them a, you know, one-minute answer or one-minute, you know, 
talk, but, you know, to spend time with them and, and try to extend that conversation and get them engaged a little bit, give them some hope that there's a way out. Maybe talk about how, you know, your experience of, you know, having trouble talking early on, you know, let, let them know that you identify with that feeling. And, uh, you know, what that does is it makes them feel like they're part of, not apart from, you see. You make them feel better that it's okay to call and talk in a real way. And what happens is uh, hopefully they'll remember that and maybe, you know, maybe they won't immediately act on it, but maybe you'll plant a seed in their mind that, you know, OA is working for some people and maybe that they ought to give it a try and give it a, 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 a maybe a more intense try. So hopefully that helped out. Great question. Thank you, Linda D. Marcy R., star one to unmute. Marcy R. All right. Perhaps she got pulled away. Jen Z, star one to unmute. Hi, this is Jen Z. Can I be heard? Yes. Go right ahead. Thank you. This is Jen Z from Kentucky Recovering Compulsive Overeater. Thank you, Len, for your share today. Um, my question for you is how do you go deeper? I find that for me, when I relapse, I find that I've left something on the table and I need to address it. Uh, maybe a trigger food, maybe um, whatever it is. But I'd rather not have to relapse in order to go deeper. So how can you just show or tell me how it was that you went deeper? I figure, you know, you only know what you know at the time. Um, so how was it that you went deeper? Yeah, well, you know, with me, I'm I'm one of those guys that, um, and great question, by the way, Jen, um, that needs to be hit over the head with a two by four. See, this, this, mm-hmm. this is, this is what, this is the problem of someone who is in self-propulsion mode and self-centeredness, you know, self-propulsion basically said, and my, the early programming told me that I can accomplish anything. You know, I was told by this mother who, you know, basically hit me with baseball bats and she did and put, you know, cigarette butts out on my, on my back. Um, you know, this person, this, my mother basically, you know, said, you know, emotions bad and, you know, self-propulsion, you know, getting yourself, you know, educated, getting yourself uh, financially secure, getting yourself a great job, you know, owning, you know, multiple real estate deals, you know, all these things was what I was taught. And I was taught that, you know, emotion was bad and basically um, that I could accomplish anything. Well, the problem with that mindset, the problem with this idea of, of that I'm responsible for my results, okay, the problem with that is that I'm going to hit a brick wall. I'm going to hit a brick wall. I'm going to, I'm going to hit a mountain that I can't move. And how do I handle that frustration? I was taught, you know, listen, I got great grades in school and I have multiple degrees and, you know, magna cum laude, all that crap, right? Bottom line is when I'm told that I'm this wonderful person intellectually, right, and financially and all these other things, I start believing that I'm essentially God, right? 
in a way. And I mean, I believe that I can accomplish anything. Well, mm-hmm. the fact is, is that my God uh, is is my GPS, and He knows that sometimes it's okay not to get those things because He knows that ultimately it won't serve me well. You know, I have to have faith in my higher power. So the question is really good because, you know, going deeper, going to the point where you have to get to the point where you ask for help, you know, and in a real, real way, because you have to hit that bottom, you know, you have to hit that bottom to the point where you ask for help. A-S-K, ask saving kit, A-S-K, asking, asking for help, okay, asking to engage, to have, you know, when I get to the point where I'm just so desperate, I'm willing to do anything, to crawl through glass in order to get recovery, that is when you're, that I'm ready, and I kind of, sort of did, you know, a recovery early on, I lost all the weight, and I was dieting with group support, but I didn't go deep enough. And because I, you know, I'm the kind of guy who looks for the loopholes. You know, I look in the big book and look for loopholes. And this was the way I dealt with life, looking for loopholes. How could I do it quicker? How could I do it my way? You know, I want to personalize everything. I wanted, to, you know, my ego was so inflated. Oh, I could accomplish anything. Well, I could rewrite the big book. You know, I could redo, you know, this wonderful proven method. I could reinvent the wheel and make it lens program. Well, that's ridiculous, right? And when I got beaten up and gotten to the point where I was putting back weight, you know, and gained back 139 pounds in the bedevilments and having a head full of big book and a belly full of food, that desperation, I I went to the point where I said I had a gun in my mouth. I did did not want to go down that road yet again, you know, and um, that's the point when, when you just beg, your higher power, get on your knees and just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. All these good ideas are not working for me. And uh, hitting that bottom brings me to that point where I have to ask for help. Okay, A-S-K, ask saving kit. You know, I have to ask for help. And when I do that, you know, there are more than, there are people more than willing to help me. And my higher power, my God wants me recovery. He wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. He did not put me on this planet to torture me. He put me on this planet to enjoy life. And uh, that's, uh, you know, I have to get to that point where of desperation, right? And get outside my own ego and my own thoughts about that I could do it my way, right? Do it Len's way because Len, of course, thinks that he knows better. And, you know, my my friend calls me ODD, he calls me odd. And, and what the ODD stands for is oppositional defiant disorder. You know, you tell me that the sky is green, I'm going to tell you it's black. If you tell me water is blue, I'm going to tell you it's white. You know, it's just being oppositional for the sake of being op- oppositional. And, I, and this is one of the huge character defects that have been uncovered in this process of shining light on all these character defects that I was either programmed with or I developed over the course of my addictive years. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Yes, thank you, Jen. Mara Z, your turn. Star one to unmute. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Len, for your share. 
for your for your straight talk. I relate to that a great deal. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> okay, so my question is, how do you work with your sponsees in getting them to understand the value and use tenth steps? I'm I'm often in a place where I am trying to stress the urgency almost of doing 10 steps based on sharing my own experience that after a year of being recovered and thinking I was all that in a bag of chips, I didn't have to do 10 steps and there I was face down the food again. Um, I have sponsees that tell me that, well, it takes too much time or it's not that important or so on and so forth. What what successful um, words or encouragement can you give me to help me share that with my sponsees? Thank you. That's a wonderful question, Mara. You know, and you know, the thing is, you could only do what you can do, and 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 sometimes, and this happens all the time. And I've had just so many sponsees either come and go, and a lot of them come, and some of them go. And what happens is, I give them suggestion. Remember, this is a suggested program of recovery. Now, of course, the things that I tell them, and this is be a little bit more pointed it'll get them so sometimes I confront them in the most gentle way that I know how <laughs> more but um, sometimes I say things like this um, I say you know um, if you go parachuting there's a sign at the end of the uh, at the doorway when you jump out and it says it's suggested that you pull the string uh, the ripcord when you leave the plane. You know, so bottom line is, you know, you can suggest to them what works. They could take it or leave it, and sometimes they leave it. And what is that? That's them taking the program back, thinking that they um, know better, right? Are they truly, truly willing, you know? And that's the thing. You know, explain to them how it's worked for you. That's what I do with my sponsees. I always give them an example of how it's worked in my life and why it works in my life today versus what I used to do. Because I used to be one of those guys. I was one of those guys who, you know, took some of my sponsor's suggestions and didn't take them all. And look what happened. Like you said, face down in the food again, right? And in the bedevilments again, right? And why? Because my ego, my pride, my arrogance, thinking that I know better, right? My ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. You tell me to do something. You know, addicts don't like to be told anything. Addicts hate to be told things. They hate to be told to do things. Well, you, well, we're not really telling them. What we're doing is we're suggesting to them that this is what worked for me and that you came to me, uh, you know, wanting my recovery. And I'm just reminding you and, and, and to go into the big book and, and point out, you know, that where it says, you know, if you want what we have and are willing to take uh, the steps, you know, then you're ready to do certain steps. So if you are willing to do this program, you have to be willing to do it as outlined in the big book. And the big book is real clear on how to do 10 steps, what to do. You know, it's the precise text on how to do it. And you just, you know, that's what I do. I, I relay my experience and how I, I have done it, how I've been defiant and how that didn't work, and that, you know, not doing the program as suggested is really, you know, basically saying that I know better, right? 
and kind of remind them that and try to do it in the most gentle way that you can. And with some sponsees, they, they may or may not take it, and you may lose your, some sponsees, and that happens, right? And we don't like to see sponsees go out again, but, you know, we could only do what we can do. And it has everything to do with are they willing? Are they willing to go to any length to recover? And remind them that that's what the book says. You have to go be willing to go to any length to, to get this recovery. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks, Maura. Very much. Thank you, Len. Thank you. Thank you, Maura. Len, can we take a few more? Sure. Okay. Who else? We'll take three more. Anyone else with Jen a question? R. Jen R. I got Kathy, and who was the other voice? B. Abby B. Abby B. Robin. Robin S. Robin S. All right. Jen R., go right ahead with your question, please. Everybody else, please mute. Hi. Um, you mentioned that you had multiple addictions. Um, I was wondering, do you count your abstinence slash sobriety date as when everything was down? Um, or if you act out in a different in a different addiction, do you restart your absent sobriety date, or do you keep them separate for each one? Thank you, Jen. That's a wonderful question. I you know, and and I absolutely believe that, and this is my belief that unless I'm you know clean in every area of addiction that I've acted out in, that I'm not clean. In other words, if I'm you know, good with the food, but I'm gambling out of, out of control. Or if I got the gambling and food down, but I'm, you know, drinking out of control. Or if I, you know, it, in other words, that I haven't addressed the root of the addiction. In other words, it's like, think about it like this. You know, there's like addictive energy out there. There's an addictive circuit in my mind. And I could pull the, the uh, weed out from the top and if the roots are still there, the roots are going to grow again and they're going to pop out in some other addiction, right? So I could, you know, try to white knuckle, you know, one addiction and I might get some success. You know, it's like being a dry drunk, right? You know, I could, I could say, well, I plug the jug, I'm not drinking. Okay, but have I worked any of the steps? Have I addressed the root cause of this addiction? Have I addressed the emotional disconnect? Have I addressed my spiritual disconnect? Have I done those things? And the fact is, is that if I am not um, working the steps and doing the work that I need to do in order to keep that channel clear to God, then what's going to happen is my addic- that addictive energy is going to find a new and exciting way to act out. So to answer your question, there's a long answer to a very short question. I absolutely count my abstinence and my clean and sober date um, based on all my addictions being addressed and and um, quieted down by using uh, the program. So that's my answer. Thanks, Jen. What great question. Thank you, Jen R. Abby B. Star one to unmute. Thank you. Thank you, Abby B. Here from Maryland. And thank you very much, Lynn. I'm one of those people with the ODD uh, condition. Um, my question has to do with the defect of self-pity. Can you talk about the remedies to self-pity? Thank you. 
Yeah, great question, Abby. You know, um, there's so many defects of character, and self-pity is one that, you know, we can milk, right? I mean, you probably have done it. I've done it. You know, it, we, go, we get into this spiral of, of um, you know, self-pity. And, you know, the, the problem with that is, is the word self, right? You know, again, we're focused on ourselves, being self-centered, right? And the fact is, is that it's so easy to get on that pity pot. Uh, woe is me. My life is horrible, right? So the thing is, is that I have been instructed and I instruct my, my um, sponsees to do gratitude lists and talk about how grateful I am, you know, one, to be above ground. You know, two, to have my legs and my, my arms. You know, I, I had, you know, diabetes and I was at risk of losing my eyesight. I had a heart attack. I'm still alive. You know, I have a roof over my head and money in the bank. And, you know, life is not as bad as, you know, you know I may not have gotten the promotion at work, uh, but you know what? Um, I got a life today and I got a daughter today and, you know, I, I have a job and I have, you know, a family. And these, you know, so the thing is, is to get out of self-pity is to, you know, take a look at really all the things and the blessings that we have in our life. You know, and we do. We have so many blessings, even being in, just being in this country. And, you know, I mean, there are places in the world that doesn't that don't even have clean water. And there are places in the world that the only electrical use that they have is one light at night, one light bulb. That's it. You know, I live in a country of, of you know, of wealth. I live in a country of excess. You know, I have, you know, amazing, you know, computers and plasma TVs and grand pianos and, you know, I mean, I, I am so blessed with so many things and I got wonderful friends and I got this amazing fellowship and, and I'm so blessed for all those things. And so it's easy to see when I do a gratitude list that, you know, my little issues, my little, you know, I didn't get my way. Um, sometimes when we look at it in terms of perspective, um, then we we aren't we don't feel as bad and you know when we get into other people's lives when we call someone else in program and we don't mention our issue our self-pity issue we don't talk about how horrible our life is but we talk to them and ask them how their life is going and maybe they have a problem and maybe you can help them and what's so cool about that is all of a sudden you feel useful and that idea of self-pity, now you have a use, you know, the crap you've been through can be useful to someone else, can fertilize a recovery in someone else. And now you feel useful. And you get to witness maybe a transformation in them. And I'll tell you, there's no better feeling than watching a person transform, okay? And if you could be part and parcel and help in any way or just be a witness to that transformation, it's better than any big, you know, any kind of fast food or pizza or ice cream, you know, that feeling of being helpful. So that's how I deal with self-pity. But great question, Abby. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Abby B. And our final question for this morning comes from Robin S. Star one to unmute Robin. Robin S. 
Good morning, Len. This is Robin S. from Connecticut, where it's uh, 28 degrees here. Thank you so much for your informational and inspirational talk this morning. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a lot and found it very helpful and also have been blessed by it. Uh, My quick question to you this morning is, are you calling us from your hot tub? Ah, (laughs) Robin, I was waiting for that. You know, the funny thing is, is um, today it's actually raining. And I know, and, and, and please know, Robin, and everyone who's listening, I, I do that. And part of it, there's a term in Yiddish, it's called cheppering. And cheppering means kind of pinching people. It's, it's, it's a kind of a cutesy little, like, kind of rubbing, uh, you know, a little bit. And I know when you said 28 degrees, I was waiting for the punchline because that's why I started to laugh. Uh, but it's actually raining. And uh, so I believe it or not, this is the first time I've been on Vision for You where I've not been in my hot tub. Can you believe that? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, I, and which is strange because if it's raining and I'm my, in my hot tub, I'm getting wet anyways. But I figure I might short out my phone or something. So I thought it might have been better not to be in the hot tub today. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for the question. Yes, thank you, Robin. That was on my mind too. <laughs> Thanks ah. for the humor. <laughs> oh, Len. <laughs> we are not. We are not a glum. We are not a glum lot. We are not a glum lot. <laughs> oh, Len, thank you so much for this inspirational and so such a helpful presentation this morning. You really gave your all. I appreciate that so much, as do many others, I am sure. Let's close from page 164. Of course, it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.